0: Wow. God's crazy love. He, he is so expressive of his love, and we're talking today about expressing love, and we just came from a men's retreat, and at a men's retreat, expressing love for most men is not what we're strongest at, okay? I'll just put it that way. We didn't go, uh, there, there were some of the guys who came to the retreat, and they said, well, I, you know, I didn't know about coming to this retreat, because I didn't know if we were going to, you know, sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya. We did not do that, Neither did we sit in a sweat lodge and beat each other with branches. We didn't go to either extreme, but we, we felt God expressing his love to us. And that's what it's all about. Maybe it's okay that we can't say the words because it, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father says, listen, sometimes expressing love is tough and I understand it, so let me demonstrate what it's all about. Let me not just say it. Let me express it by the way I live, by the way I act. The real problem comes when we express love for things that aren't worthy of our love. We say that we love a lot of things. I had somebody say to me this week, I love Jeopardy. How many of you love Jeopardy? I love Jeopardy. I yeah." You know what Jeopardy is? It's Trivial Pursuit on Steroids. That's all it is, right? It's Trivial Pursuit on Steroids. I was watching Jeopardy one time, I'll never forget, and the category was 16th Century Art. And I said to Kathy, I'm not going to get any of these. And I was right. <laughs> and the $2,000 the $2, question, or you know, they always give the answer, and here was the answer. He died at age 37 in 1520. How many of you know the answer to that? That's what I thought. Raphael, just in case you didn't, you know, you don't have to go look it up on the internet afterwards. The answer was Raphael. And what really worried me is all three of them knew it. It was like, oh, yeah, the guy says, oh, Raphael. And said, Raphael say, Yeah, yeah, I knew that one. Yeah, right. 16th century art. Do you ever feel like your life is a game of trivial pursuit? How many hours of your life are you spending sitting at red lights or stop signs? Don't you love that? How many hours of your life do you spend in a line at Winco or Walmart or Safeway or Food Max or wherever you go? How many hours of your life do you think you spend in things that seem to be trivial pursuit? Before we went to the men's retreat, one of the things I knew that I needed to do is make sure that the bills were all paid. And, you know, even if you do it on the computer, that's just so much fun. I enjoy that not you know it's trivial pursuit and you know you need you know for some reason the mortgage company they like to have that money and you have to do it but it's trivial pursuit so much of our time sometimes even cheering for our favorite team it's trivial pursuit some of the guys at the retreat were saying oh you know i hope we get done in time so we can listen to the giants and and hear what's happening to the game But you know, as the weekend progressed, I heard that less and less. Because we were meeting with Almighty God. And the trivial stuff just seems to fade in comparison. Galatians 5, 6 says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself Through love, and the trivial pursuits of this life begin to fade away when we realize the only thing that really counts, the only thing that really matters, is this belief system, this this faith in Jesus Christ, this ability to come by grace through faith to Jesus Christ, and then expressing that faith through love. Here's where we're going with the message today: this crazy love of God. God demonstrates His crazy love and expresses it in such a way, often in difficult ways. So that we can learn, so that we can grasp, so that we can become part of expressing His love to others. God expresses His love, His crazy love, in difficult ways sometimes so that we can learn to express God's love to those around us. And, and I want to look at. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter eight. What's interesting is the the last session in the men's uh, retreat, the the pastor Kurt Jones from Valley Church in Cupertino. What a tremendous man of God! We had a, an awesome time with this guy. Uh, you know, I, I just I, I love Pastor Jones, Kurt Jones, and he he was in Romans chapter eight. And I'm going to work around what he spoke on. Uh, he didn't know I was speaking in Romans eight, and I didn't know he was. But you know what? The Holy Spirit knew that, didn't he? God knew that. Romans chapter 8, it says expressive love provides an opportunity. Expressive love really provides us an opportunity to grow. Romans chapter 8, tough verses, verses 18 through 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If you have any suffering, if you have any trouble, if you are having any difficulty in life, your present sufferings, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And look at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's us. Now, he's been talking about creation, but he includes us in that in verse 23. Not only so, but we, as well as the creation... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? That would be like us saying, I hope it rains today. We're there, okay? You don't have to hope for it, it's already there. Verse 25 But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Three things that we learn from this passage about God's expressive love. Expressive love provides an opportunity. Number one, expressive love teaches us and helps us to learn to choose to be grateful. We can choose. We can learn to choose to be grateful. Because he's saying here, do you not understand? that I consider all of these, these present sufferings, it's no big deal. You should be grateful for the sufferings in comparison to what God has given. You say, wait a second, I'm not real grateful for sufferings I'm not real grateful for these things do you understand that the Old Testament is so so much an illustration of the New Testament that the Old Testament has so much depth and so much of what we need to see and in the Old Testament one of the major themes of the Old Testament especially Exodus is discontent Were the, the children of Israel was Israel happy in Exodus no it was a major theme. For 400 years, they lived as slaves. And this is what they basically prayed. If we could just be free, God, if you would just free us, just get us out of, uh, of, of Egypt. If we can just be free, if we can just go out, we will be eternally grateful. Did it work? No. They'd be grateful if they could just be free. Exodus 15, 23 and 24 says, when they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses and when they grumbled against Moses God says Moses they're not grumbling against you they're really grumbling against me he says the people said if we could just be free and the first time the water doesn't taste good we were at a retreat where they have sulfur water that's an interesting thing to walk by and then think oh boy they're piping that into the rooms for us that's so nice to smell that sulfur every time you walk by the sulfur springs and realize that that pitcher of water that they put on the table may be a little bitter because it has the minerals in there. And they grumbled. There, there are three words that, are, that highlight Exodus. Complain, murmur, and grumble. Grumble in English is a word that we call onomatopoeia. You know what that means? It sounds like what it is. It sounds like what it means. I want to show you how that works. I want everybody at the count of three to say the word grumble out loud. In fact, very loud. I want you to say the word grumble three times. Grumble, 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 grumble. Can you get that? Okay. One, two, three. Ooh, that sounds ugly. Grumble, grumble, grumble. You should have. I mean, it sounds like a freight train's coming up here. And if there were two million people, they would grumble, 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 grumble. Can you imagine what it sounded like to Moses? Even more, can you imagine what it sounds like to God when we grumble? And we say, Lord, we don't like this. And you know, after the water, the Lord said he he provided the water for for them. It, It became sweet water, and later he struck a rock. And other times he provided water every time they needed it. But it goes beyond that because then they said, well, Lord, we have the water, but we don't have food. And so he gave them what? Manna. You know what the definition of manna is? What is it? They saw it and they said, What is it? And what the Bible says is you could bake it or you could broil it, you could cook it anyway, and it, it was like honey and wafers, but somehow when you cooked it, it it was transformed into just about what what it would be like. I love what John Ortberg says about manna. Manna was by all accounts an amazing product. It tasted like wafers made from honey. It was apparently a very versatile food. The Israelites were told to bake what they wanted to bake, broil what they wanted to bo- boil, lay aside what they wanted to eat raw. It sounds like a little like Bubba in the movie Forrest Gump describing the infinite varieties of ways in which you could fix shrimp. Baked manna, boiled manna, barbecued manna, manna on a stick, manna burgers, manna salad, manna cotti, manna banana cream pie. That's what manna was. The Lord says, hey, this is all you need. Here's some manna. Why don't you just do anything you want to with it? And guess what? They grumbled. And they said, Lord, we're so tired of manna. Can you give us meat? And you remember what the Lord said? Okay, you'll have meat. You'll have meat until you're sick of meat. You'll have meat until it comes out your nose. That's gross. That's gross. I mean, it's almost as bad as Lee talking about pooper scooper. I mean, can't imagine that. Can you, can you imagine the meat? They were so sick and it made them sick. And, it, and look what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.10 10, when Paul is writing back about this time. It says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Do you realize that the, the leaders of, the, of Israel that came and said, we have to have meat, every one of them died because of their grumbling? What if God killed everybody in the church that grumbled? Woo! We could probably meet in any of the classrooms at any time, couldn't we? Isn't that sad? God says, you're discontent. We've raised complaint to a new art form. Why are we so frustrated? Why are we frustrated? Did you look at these verses again? Look at verse 24. The creation was subjected to frustration. Why are we frustrated? Because God made us frustrated. God gives us Frustration. God said from the very beginning when man fell, you are going to be frustrated. This is not an accident. God said, I will use even frustration in your life. You can either complain or you can grumble or you can come back to God and see how he provides. We would set up other gods and God knew that. And God knew at the fall that when we set up these other gods and we would spend our lives in trivial pursuit of pleasure or wealth or power or status, that he needed to provide something that would drive us home. So it says that God subjects us to frustration to drive us to him for lasting satisfaction. One more time with John Ortberg, God's hope is that we will stop searching for the infinite satisfaction that you get from finite objects that you cannot get from finite objects. God's hope is that we will stop searching for infinite satisfaction that you cannot get from finite objects. Paul is writing about this and in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned. It's a learning curve. It's not something that you just, one day you do it, but you make baby steps and you begin to learn one day instead of grumbling, instead of complaining, instead of belly aching and saying, oh God, my life is so hard. Instead you turn to him and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to learn? What are you trying to teach me today? How are you trying to call me back home? And you make that baby step, and then you do it again, and you do it again. Paul writes, I have learned, whatever the circumstances, to be content. I've learned contentment. He writes that in Philippians chapter 4. By the way, where does he write that from? From prison. I've learned to be content, he says, even from prison. Learn to choose to be grateful. Number two, eagerly choose to be fruitful. Again, God says that he gives us frustration because... He wants us to go from the emptiness. There's a Greek word there, mada aiotes. aiotes. it means emptiness. It means vast emptiness. It's, it's a futility. It's a purposelessness. You, you don't have any purpose at all, and so you, your purpose is gone. And he says there's that vast emptiness, and it's not to punish us. It. It's, it's, it, it's to free us, it says. You're bound to decay. His goal is freedom to be fruitful. His goal is freedom for us to finally experience what it means to be healthy and vital and useful and fulfilled and satisfied. He said, did you realize that you already have the the first fruits? I learned a little bit about first fruits when we lived in Holtville. There were different, there were different uh, crops that they would put in, and especially the alfalfa. When they first planted the alfalfa, they would leave it for four or five years, but the first cutting was always the richest. The, it was the best, and it was true of the onions, the first crop of the onions, or the first crop of the broccoli, or the first crop of whatever it was. And we loved sometimes when they did the asparagus, somebody would come at the first cutting of asparagus, and they would bring us that fresh, new asparagus that had just come up. It had been waiting for 11 months, Months, finally for the season for the harvest to begin and they would cut some of the fresh asparagus and they would cut it and 15 minutes later they would be at our door and they'd say we know you're going to cook dinner in an hour here's some fresh asparagus to eat wow that was a treat the lord says i've i've given you the fresh the first crop the the first fruits of the spirit what is the fruit of the spirit look at what it says the fruit of the spirit The fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But the first fruit of the the Spirit is love. He says, I've given you this crazy love that overarches and and overwhelms everything else. The fruit of the Spirit. And we're to eagerly choose this. It says there's an eager expectation. Again very unique word in the Greek it's to wait eagerly it's a unique phrase it literally literally means to lift your head it means that you are in despair you ever get in despair and you just you see the guys who are playing football and they miss the they miss the the pass or they miss the catch or they miss the kick and they go to the sidelines and what do they do they put their heads down and you'll see the coaches a lot of times come and say don't you put your head down lift your head and the Lord says it's not because somebody comes and tells you, but because you are eagerly looking. You lift your head. It, it means your eyes are fixed on that point of the horizon with expectation. You're standing on tiptoe. You're stretching your neck. You're, you're craning forward. Last week when Gordon was up here playing, we had some people on this side of the choir that were dying to see his hands and we had people on this side of the auditorium that were dying to see their hands and to see his hands because his hands were so amazing as Gordon is playing. What I couldn't believe is Gordon Mote, totally blind, can't see a thing, would clap his hands and bring his hands exactly back down on the keyboard where they needed to be. How did he do that? I don't know. Years of practice, years of sense of where he is on the keyboard, but he would do that and it would seem miraculous that he would come down and it wasn't that he was searching. He would come down full stride and just go right on with the song and we were dying to see his hands and some people, I noticed people that were stretching. I noticed Jerry Bennett, she was stretching around trying to find it up in the choir and I thought, she's going to fall out of that chair. So I was watching her. Forget Gordon, I just wanted to see her fall. You have this eager expectation. Is that the way you're looking at the Lord? Do you eagerly look? Do you have this eager expectation God, what are you going to do next? I'm in the midst of this frustration. I'm in, in the midst of this battle. My, my, the economy stinks, and my life stinks, and my job stinks, and my marriage is in trouble, and, and I'm having problems with my children. And I eagerly expect God, what are you going to do next? That's the way He says to live. Every day, so excited about what God's going to do next. Are we that eager to produce godly fruit, to, to have the fruit of the Spirit begin to well up in us in that love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest? Eagerly choose to be fruitful. And the third one, joyfully choose to be hopeful. These are all choices you have to make. Joyfully choose to be hopeful. And in verse 20, I love the, the fact Verse 19 says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And then those two words, In hope. God did all of this with one hope. It's the key to the meaning of the whole passage. If those two words there, In hope, were not there, then we would think of God that He is an evil God, or a vengeful God. Or He is a God who did not love, but in hope. He did this for one reason, because He hoped that even the frustration that comes in our life from the fall would draw us back to Him. We have an unending cycle. Have you ever noticed that? You have conception and birth and growth. And it's relentlessly followed by what? Decline and decay and decomposition. It talks about this, the decay of the creation itself. It says you start out with this birth and this growth and the maturity, and then all of a sudden comes the decline, the decay, the decomposition. We were on the third story, the third floor uh, for the men's retreat. It sounded like locomotives coming up and down the stairs. <sighs> And that was when they got to the first landing. They weren't even to the second floor. The decay, the decomposition. I love going to a men's retreat. I love the smell of gay in the morning. (laughs) And we're in the midst of this cycle and the Lord says, do you want hope? Jesus Christ is your hope. His hope is that the frustration will one day cause the prodigal son to stop rooting in that pig trough and say, I'm going to go to home my, to my dad. His hope is that one day that prodigal son who took everything, who ran from him and who who wallows in that filth and in that hog slop will one day say, this is enough, this is insane, what am I doing in the midst of this? I want to go home to dad. I want to run to see my father. And Maybe he won't let me back in the family, but maybe I can just be a servant And it says the father has been watching for the son. And in Middle East culture, it's a great dishonor for the father to ever run, especially toward a child. But the father sees the son, and what does he do? He goes galloping and he says, My son! My son is home! Bring the fatted calf and and put the best robe on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on This is no servant. This is my son. That's the hope of the father. He sees us wandering in this trivial pursuit and he says, will you come home? Will you come home to me? It's a choice and we're instructed to make this choice. Romans 12.12 says this, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's a command, be joyful in hope. It is an instruction. It is a choice. You can choose today whether to allow this frustration that's happening in your life to bring you home or you can stay in the pig slop. It's your choice. Ex- expressive love provides an opportunity to grow. Expressive love also is an invitation to trust. I want to go back to Romans chapter 20, uh, chapter 8. Expressive love is an invitation. Look at what it says. Expressive love is an invitation to trust. Romans 8 28 through 39. Look what it says. I love this passage. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And we know. Wait a second. We know? In verse 26, it says, We do not know how we ought to pray. In verse 18, it says, We don't understand. We don't really know about frustration. But in verse 28 it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among a whole family, among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called, those He called, He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Don't miss that process. When God starts the process, nobody's lost. Those he predestines, the same number are all, all also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say again? If God is for us, who can can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now look at verse 35. Love this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. You you know, we don't really think that. We don't think that we face death all day long. We think we face life. We don't think that we're in the midst of of a process that we may be killed. But but he says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Underline that if if you underline in your Bible. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including you, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God. Did you get that? Once you come to Him and you are His child, you cannot separate yourself nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's an invitation to trust Him. Three different times I see here, trust what Christ accomplished. Trust what Christ accomplished. He says He gave Himself for us. He came and, and died on the cross, and He stretched His arms to die on the cross in your place, in my place. Because He died, we can live. Because of what He paid, we have new life. trust what Christ accomplished. I think this is such a startling contrast. We know. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know about the the frustration, but we know this one thing. What? And I'm going to give you five things here under this, this first point. What do we know? God works. God works. If you're writing this down, it's not up here. You're not going to see it. Just write down God works. God works in your life. God is active. He's dying to be active in your life today. We know beyond any shadow of a doubt, that faith is not in the past. It is real. It is vital. It's, it's every moment that you live. God works, present tense. It's going on right now. Here's the second thing. God works for the good. God works for the good. And we don't get that. We think somehow that maybe God works and he works in our life, but maybe, it's, you know, maybe he's got an awful little kelter. Maybe he's not doing something that's, that's right. And Paul writes to the Galatian church, they had gotten this, and they'd gotten to the point that they thought, well, you know, God's working, but I'm not really happy about the way he's doing it. And so they tried to do it in their own strength. And look at what Paul says in, in Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Are you going to go back and try to do this on your own? He says, God works. God works for the good. He has your best interest in mind at all times. And the third thing that I noticed from Romans eight twenty eight is he says, in all things, God works for the good. In all things. That diagnosis that you thought was the worst thing that God could ever do is one of those things. Your circumstances in your job, your circumstances in your finances, your circumstances, whatever they might be, in your marriage, in your family, whatever it is, in all things, God works for the good in everything that happens in our life. God works for the good. Even the negative is used by God for our good. You remember two weeks ago we saw that video, we had a video two weeks ago called The Chisel, Skit Guys. And I know some of you watched it because some of you went back and said, did you know there's a whole lot of videos from those guys? Yeah, absolutely. Go to the website, the skit guys, and you can watch probably 40 or 50 different videos. But in the chisel, God is there with his chisel, and he has his hammer, and he has his chisel, and he's doing what? He's chiseling off the parts. And he says, what are you going to chisel away? And he says, everything that doesn't look like me. And that negative part, when God is chiseling, and he says, can you take a little bit off the sides right here? I'm really having a hard time, you know. And God says, no, I'm going to take off what I need to take off. And it seems negative, and it seems painful, and you think, God, don't chisel there, that hurts. And God says, but I want you to look like Jesus Christ. God works. God works for the good. In all things, God works. And then look at the next one. He works for the good of those who love Him. Is the fourth thing I want to point out. Of those who love Him. That's the only limit. That's the only limiter here. And, and God says, I want you to, to know me. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me. I want you to be a part of, of my family. But more than anything, God says, I want you to love me. They came to Jesus and, and Jesus could have said, the greatest commandment is to, to, to trust and obey. The two things you need to do are trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Wouldn't that, I mean, that would have made a great song if Jesus had said that. Oh, that is a song, never mind but that's not what he said. What's the greatest commandment, Lord? What do you want me to do? And he could have said, well, it's all about great faith, or it's all about grace, or something else. And what does he say? It is. We come by faith. We come because of God's grace. But he said, I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to love me and love others. I want you to love me God works in all things. God works for the good of those who love Him. And here's the fifth one. Who have been called according to His purpose. Who have been called according to His purpose. God was not surprised by the cross. The cross was not an accident. It was not a hiccup. It was not a a bump along the road. The cross was carefully planned out. God's purpose included the cross. It included Jesus Christ dying for you. It included Him dying for me. Had a purpose. A couple of weeks ago, I I told Kathy I need to go out and replace just one fence board. It's just, it's right there by the gate, and the gate hinge is is screwed through it, but there's a post behind it, and the fence post itself or, you know, the, the, the slat on the outside has split. And because of that, the hinge won't sit properly. And I've tried to fix it. I just need to replace that one board. It's a, you know, it's a, what, a one by six. It's, it's no big deal. It's, you know, it's the typical wooden fence board. And I went out to fix it. And, and I took the fence board off and I realized not only one hinge, but two hinges because the, the gate, there's a big wide gate and there's a narrow gate. And they both are screwed through that. And I thought it won't be a big deal. And I put the first one up and I began to, to put the hinge back and it split the board. And I, thought I have one more I need to be careful and I got the drills out and I drilled it and I I thought this was going to take me 10 minutes and then by the time I drilled it then I needed to readjust the hinges and prop it up and do this and adjust everything I was out there an hour and a half to replace one stinking little board you guys have never had any work projects like that right what I thought was going to be my purpose had so many more ramifications God's never surprised by all that's involved in the process. And he says, I'm going to do it anyway because I love you. Trust what Christ accomplished. Number two, trust what Christ promises. If His purpose is to be fulfilled also, His promises will always come true. Trust what Christ promises. Did you notice what it says here? He says, "To, to those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. If God is for us, who can be against us? Kurt Jones did a masterful job, and I'm not going to try to replicate what he did for the men yesterday. If you were not there, man, you missed a a tremendous blessing. But let me just say this. We could focus on predestination. We could focus on free will. We We could look at the results. But this is what I want you to see. God never loses a single person. When you come by faith to Him, you never, ever lose that. Did you get that? God doesn't lose anybody. You can trust Him because He promised that. He longs to quench your thirst, to satisfy your hunger, to cure your dissatisfaction. And he says, if you come to me, I'll do that. Isaiah 55, 1. I love this passage. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And verse 2 says, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. The King James says, Your soul will delight in the fatness. I've been on a diet, surprise, started when I was two, I'm going to get off of it when I die, and you know what, I've had every soybean additive you can imagine, I've had oatmeal laced hamburger, I've had all this other stuff, and the Lord says this is no, and I wrote this down, this is no low-cal, low-fat, low-sodium, oatmeal-based, soybean-added substitute, God is pro-fat, praise God. He said, I'm going to give you the steak marbled with the good stuff and it's going to taste wonderful and it's going to be satisfying and you are going to love this meal that I give you because I want to give you the richest affair. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Come to me if you're hungry. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors. John 10, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. No one can pluck them from my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. Greater than all. No one that is able to pluck them from my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. When you come to me, you are mine. You're not going away. In that chisel video, the other line that I absolutely loved, God is speaking to Tommy, and Tommy says to him, God, but I've let you down. And God says, you are never holding me up. I hold you with my victorious, right, righteous hand. You've never held me up, Tommy. My salvation is not dependent on me. It's dependent on the God who saved me. Trust what Christ promises. And here's the last one. Trust in the love Christ expresses. Trust in the love that Christ expresses. Did you notice he says trouble, hardship, persecution. Can I just throw that into a category? That's what the world throws at us. The world is going to throw at you trouble. The world is going to throw hardship. The world is going to throw persecution. You know what? We've not really been persecuted as believers that much. But we're going to be persecuted for what we believe. When we stand strong on what the Bible says on ethical and moral issues, we are going to be persecuted. We need to understand that. That's what the world throws at us. And God says, will that separate us from from the Lord, from the love of God? No. Nakedness or famine." We as Americans have not experienced the lack of material goods. Oh, we think we're really suffering because we don't have the latest ATV or we don't have the latest boat or we don't have the latest clothes or whatever. God says, do you think there's anything materially that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Danger or sword? He says, even death itself, do you think that's going to separate us from the love of Christ that we find? No. No. They're real issues. They're unpleasant. They're demeaning. They're unfair. They're painful. They're challenging to our faith. But it says, no, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. The word victory there is nikeo. We were talking about it yesterday, and I I already had it down, and I'm so glad that he confirmed that I was right in my Greek. Nikeo. Uh, There's a little Greek word that's been used on some uh, emblems. It's called Nike. the swoosh. Have you ever seen the swoosh, Nike. That means victory. That was from the idea of winged victory, but Nike is actually the word, the Greek word Nikeo. It's it's for victory. And then Paul says he's so overwhelmed. He says it's not just Nikeo. It's huper huper Nikeo. It's it's super victory. It is. It's overwhelming. It's domination. It's not just winning. It's crushing. We are dominators. We are more than victors. We are crushing the opposition. Through Him who loved us. Ephesians. Look at what Ephesians says. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, that's everybody who's a believer, to grasp how wide and, and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that you may be super victors, that you may be conquerors for Jesus Christ. and the word literally in the greek says i am convinced i have become convinced and i remain convinced and i will be convinced until the day i die the way that the verb is used it's not just a past or present or future it's all of the above in the past i was convinced today i'm continue to be convinced and tomorrow i will still be convinced that we are more than conquerors in the perfect tense Have you ever had a chance to let the Lord help you to be a conqueror? I was really challenged. I had another illustration to end with, but I was really challenged by the speaker yesterday, by Kurt Jones, and and it dawned on me. When was a time that I allowed some personal thing to to really allow me to struggle? And I went back to an event that may be different from what you thought. A a few years ago, uh, when our daughter was pregnant with the first child, uh, Nico, Nicholas. Uh, we were so excited about her having a baby and, and there was some question and she had the baby and everything was great and we went and we were there and, and it was an exciting time and we were so thrilled about this baby being born and we were typical grandparents and we went back and forth and everything. A couple of years later she 's finishing our, our daughter is finishing her college uh, degree just about the time she decides to go back for, to finish her degree. She gets pregnant the first time, and a couple of years later, just as she 's finishing again, uh, then she 's pregnant the second time, and we think, "Wow, this is really exciting to, to have to go through two pregnancies and finish up all this time at U, uh, the university of texas and but she 's going through this, and we 're so proud of her, and she she, you know, she says uh, Uh, We said to Sam, her husband's parents, if they would like to come and be in Austin for the birth of this baby, we wanted to share the the wealth and it was so much fun. And they came and little Lincoln was born with Down syndrome. For some reason, when she called and she was devastated and the tears were there and we were on the phone, I I, I so desperately felt like we should be there. And we already had tickets for two days later. We were going to pass in the night and, and hand the baton off from from Sam's parents to us and we were going to stay a while and we ended up staying a little longer and I, and I came back and Kathy stayed until Lincoln got out of the, the NICU, the, the neonatal ICU. And we stayed during that time, but that's not it. During that time I was able to give Lincoln to the Lord and I was able to give Liz and Sam and, and we were concerned about it, but it, it, it was overwhelming, but it didn't seem to be one of those times that it was just oh, too much for me. Then about a year later, Sam was diagnosed with a rare disease that made all of his joints swell, and he couldn't hold any weight, and he couldn't work for a while, and and they didn't know for sure whether it was some sort of really bad arthritis or something else. And then came the diagnosis that that our son-in-law, 30-something years old, was going to have to take chemotherapy for the rest of his life. Once a week for the rest of his life. This young man was going to have to take these powerful chemicals to knock down this disease just to allow him to live some normalcy and we don't know what it means about the length of his life and here he has this special needs child, this down syndrome baby and I was just overwhelmed. And I'll confess to you, I wanted to move. I wanted to move to Austin. I felt like I needed to be there. I, you know, I, I could help and I could be the papa and I could step in and, and that was my first ministry to my children and the Lord did not allow that. He didn't want that. I'm being honest with you, folks. And I remember one night, some people from the church took an offering, and they allowed us to go at Christmas time to see Sam and, and Liz and Nico and, and Lincoln, and Sam was, his, his elbows swollen and painful, but he was doing better already, and I was just praying. I was lying awake in their house thinking, God, how can this be? And I didn't hear an audible voice. But God said, do you not think that I have them in my hands? And this verse came back. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. And that night I gave Sam and Liz and Nico and Lincoln to the Lord. And I became a conqueror. It's not that there aren't days that I still wish that we could be in Austin. But that's not where God has placed us. God has given us this assignment. And until he releases us, this is our assignment. But that does not mean that he is not the conqueror. You know what's amazing? God has not healed Sam. He has not healed Lincoln. Lincoln is still Down syndrome. Sam still takes chemotherapy every week. But we are more than conquerors because God is in control. And God has the preeminence. And God is going to do what he needs to do when he needs to do it. And it changed forever the way I lived. And I would never have gotten there unless Sam had had to be in that condition. And I could finally say, God, I thank you even for this evil disease that is destroying his joints. And he wants to do the same thing with you, if you will. Do you trust his promises? Do you trust what he's achieved? Do you trust his love? If so, it changes forever the way you live. Would you bow with me and pray? We're going to sing a song in a minute. And I'm going to go up and play the song and sing the song, but we want to open this up. If you have a spiritual need, you can come and sit in one of these seats. You can come and pray. Maybe you're facing that battle. And God wants you to give to Him those things that are dearest to you. Because when you are, you'll never be the same. Father, oh, Father, I'm convinced that You are all-powerful that you can do all things and that you have a purpose that's far greater than my purpose and you have a plan that's far greater than my plan and you want us to do what you want us to do and you're willing to frustrate us until we're finally ready to do that. So make us your people. Father, if there's anyone here who has never accessed the grace of God by the faith, bring them today. May they love you and know you and trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.